please sit down a moment and uh, if you can look up uh, Micah chapter 6 on page 934. Well, you know, I've only been uh, out of the country a few weeks. I got back last night. And the whole country seems to be in meltdown. I mean, I don't know what's going on, really. Obviously, the events of the last 12 uh, days or so uh, in some of our major cities have been uh, very disturbing and quite shocking to many of us. Uh, just in the few hours yesterday afternoon as I was driving back from Stansted Airport listening to Radio 4, you get a sense of how politicians and media commentators are struggling to make sense of it all. Well, I know uh, that some of you sometimes have struggled with the relevance of the Old Testament, And yet here we have a passage before us which says in verse 1, listen to what the Lord says, listen to what the Lord says. And verse 9 says, listen, the Lord is calling to the city. So I hope that as we just listen to God's words here this morning, we'll try to make some sense of the struggling uh, that's been going on for the last week here in Britain in 2011. Uh, Let's uh, pray as we seek to do that. Father God, we thank you that you are God who spoke 2,700 years ago. You are God who speaks today in 2011. Lord, we thank you that you can speak to us here this morning in Holy Trinity through my words. Make them clear, make them uh, from your, by, led by your spirit, Lord, so that we might all come under the authority of your word. Amen. So what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8. That's the question that underlies the whole of this book of Micah. What is good and what does the Lord require of you? Or more accurately, collectively, from us, God's people. It's a question that highlights a fundamental confusion in our world, I think. A sense that as human beings, we are special, aren't we? We're special, we are created, we're clearly uniquely gifted among the animals. We have a unique, unique responsibility for, for looking after this world. And yet our families break down, our parents get it wrong, and teenagers of previously good character uh, uh, read Facebook messages and, and go out and riot on the streets. They attack others, they loot televisions and trainers, and they set fire to Miss Selfridge. How does this all make sense before God? Well, of course, our society has largely given up on God, hasn't it? It's a point well made by Anne Wilson, not usually a, a friend of Christianity, in yesterday's Daily Mail that I picked up free at the airport. Legacy of a society that believes in nothing was the title. Wilson says, with no sense of moral law within or awareness of a sovereign God without, human life falls into absolute chaos, anarchy and unpleasantness. Without a religion, he says, we are all less than human. In other words, all of this violence and despair in some way reflects our alienation from God. Young people sense, seek a sense of purpose and direction in their lives. They find it only in consumerism and having the latest iPod. And yet with all their God-given creativity and God-given uniqueness, surely they are made for something more than simply the doll or teenage parenthood. The despair comes from recognising this gulf between how God has made us, our God-given potential, and our actual situation. So what can fill this, goal, this void? What is good? 
and what does the Lord require from us? Well, I want to make two points from Micah uh, chapter 6. Firstly, our dues have been paid. Our dues have been paid. Secondly, our duty has been made clear. So firstly, our dues have been paid. But around 700 BC, God's people were split into two. Israel, the northern kingdom, had already fallen to the Assyrians. Judah, the southern kingdom, narrowly escaped invasion in 701 BC and lived in fear. Things were clearly not as they were meant to be. The covenant between God and his people had been broken and things were bad. And so in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, God calls his people into court. It's a bit like Rupert Murdoch being invited to go to the Parliamentary Select Committee a few weeks ago. It's an invitation they couldn't refuse. And just as the world's media was focused on the Murdochs that day, here the very mountains and the hills are witnesses to God's complaint against the other half of his creation, the human half. In verses 3 to 5, God reminds his people that he's kept his side of the bargain. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. You see, this is the central plank of Israel's story. And the Bible continually reminds us to remember that God is the one who rescues. He is the one who redeems. He is the God who is more powerful than Egyptian chariots or the spells of Balaam in verse 5. He is the one who took them from one side of the river Jordan to the other, between Shittim and Gilgal, and into the promised land. As they hear the charges against them, or they can hear God's justification, they begin, you begin to sense their indignation as they begin to realise how serious their situation is. So they interrupt God with all these self-justifying questions in verses 6 to 8. What shall I come before, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? You see, the people thought they had the answer. They knew their scriptures, and they knew that in Leviticus chapter 17, uh, required sacrifice for the sin that causes alienation. For the life of a creature is in the blood, it says, and I've given it to you to make atonement for one's life. And there were no shortages of sacrifice in Israel. And there were good ones too. You see, calves were acceptable for sacrifice once they were only seven, year, seven days old. And yet here they're offering yearlings, a year-old calf. They were much better sacrifices because they'd kept, uh, been kept for much longer. They'd been kept until they were a year old. They'd cost a lot more to keep all that time. This was high-quality sacrifice. Is this, God, what you require of us? Shall I become before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, they ask? With not quality, then, perhaps God wants quantity from us. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Is this what you require of us? Just as our society thinks that the answer lies in the quality of education, or the quality of the parents' parents' teaching on right and wrong, and teachers being able to set boundaries, or or perhaps the quantity of policemen, or social workers, or of laws. Surely this is what has worked in the past. Surely it will work again now. If only we can legislate and invest in new training and new projects and new schemes, which get ever more extreme and apparently daring with every new government that comes along. It was no different in Israel. If yearlings and rivers of oil didn't turn the tide of social alienation, then shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, they asked, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. See, Micah had lived through the reign of King Ahaz, who ruled from 735 to 715 BC. He was only 20 when he took to the throne and 36 when he died. 
But King Ahaz was an intensely religious man. He loved to make sacrifices in the temple. So much so that when he uh, went on a diplomatic trip to neighboring uh, Damascus, we're told in 2 Kings 16 that he saw an altar there, a marvelous altar, and he sent a sketch of it back home to Uriah the priest and uh, with detailed plans for its construction. And before Ahaz returned back home, Uriah had built this altar, an exact replica of what had been in Damascus, and they placed it in the prime place in the temple, moving the old bronze altar that God had told them to make to one side, a bit like our font, which moves around the place. But that's got wheels, but that's technological progress for you. And from then on, all the main offerings in the temple were made on this new altar, made to an Assyrian design and a design of the enemies. Do you see the problem? 2 Kings 16 spells it out. It says that unlike David, Ahaz, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. In fact, he followed the example of the kings of Israel in the northern half of the kingdom who had already absorbed the religion of their neighbours and given in to the world around them. See, Ahaz was devoted and he wanted to give God what he wanted and yet he'd abandoned the ways of his father which had been subscribed to them by God himself. And instead of doing what God had told him to do, he was taking in the ways of the world. He listened to the commentators and experts. He did what was fashionable. He did what was acceptable to society in his age. And as a result, his life was one of terrible fear. You see, he could never be sure that the gods were happy with him. 2 Kings 16, verses 3 and 4 say, He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Verse 3 says, He walked in the ways of the king of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. You see, Ahaz made the most extreme sacrifice. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. But God says these ways are detestable to him. It's one of the reasons why the Israelites were told to destroy the Canaanites as they entered the land. Ahaz's generation were desperate to put things right, to get rid of this sense of alienation. They tried the best, the biggest quantity, the most extreme versions of sacrifice. Just as no doubt we will try now new educational programs, new legislation and new guidance to parents and teachers. And yet God says it will all be to no avail. Why? Because verses 9 to 16, if you want to cast your eye down those, or Micah 6, make it clear that we are guilty. You see, despite their sacrifices, and despite all the educational legislative reforms that we will put into place, we will continue to be guilty. There will be ill-gotten treasures, dishonest scales, false weights, violence, lies, deceit, idolatry of Omri and Ahab. You might as well say idolatry of Sony and Nike. The punishment of God is upon them and upon us. Verse 16. God says, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will hear the scorn of the nations. And you should have read some of the articles that I've been reading in Spanish newspapers during the course of this last week. You see, these simple sins, they lead to complete social breakdown. Chapter 7, verse 3, rulers demand gifts, judges demand bribes. Verse 5, you can't trust a neighbour or a friend. Even your wife who shares your bed, you can't trust her. Verse 6, son rises against father, and so on and so on. You can't have it both ways. If we want a God who is good and powerful and just, then we have to realise that he cannot tolerate sin, whoever we are. God is not just the God of the temple or even the church. He's the God of the shopping centre, the workplace, the home. 
He's the God of the banking sector. He's the God who rules over the governance in the east of Africa. He rules over the agricultural policies of the European community. And he judges them for, his, for their corruption and lack of action to prevent the famine. MPs' expenses, journalists, corrupt peace, police. As some people have said this week, who can blame the young people for wanting a bit of the action? God is the God of all these things. So what is good and what does the Lord require from us? Well, religion, in Micah's day, had conveniently forgotten that God's sovereignty extends over the whole of our lives. It was a religion where ceremonies were discharged with emotional feeling and material extravagance. The best sacrifices, the most sacrifices, the most extreme sacrifices, but that had become the sum total of their spiritual commitment. Do you see here the ruthlessness of religion? It is ruthless in its demands for greater commitments, more costly sacrifice, greater pain, more humiliation. The death of a royal son. And we live in a society that has rejected religion, but our society will be ruthless in its analysis of the events of this week. They'll say better education, better parenting, more projects, more scheme, more punitive evictions of council tenants. Do we see the ruthlessness in our society? So what is good and what does God require from us? Well, God says to Israel, all of this sacrifice, which has been repeated through the years, which has had to be multiplied, the worse our lives have become, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, is all just about man trying to put themselves in the centre of the picture. God says to them, your religion is about you and your sacrifice. It's become a ridiculous attempt of man to win favour with God. And God says, no, our Jews have already been paid. Yes, the blood of a son is required, but not one of ours. Yes, the sacrifice of a royal son is required, but not one of King Ahaz's, a son of David's. Micah tells us in chapter 5, verse 2, about the son who will be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, to rule and be the shepherd of his flocks. As Micah's contemporary Isaiah told the very same King Ahaz, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In chapter 9 of Isaiah he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government of God will be on his shoulders. Chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. You see, King Ahaz, with his extreme religiosity, received more prophecies about the incarnation of Jesus than any other king in Israel or Judah. Why? Because more than anyone else, he was putting man at the centre of our atonements. But the incarnation, Jesus is coming to earth, puts God at the centre of our salvation. Our Jews have been paid not by us, but by God himself in Christ. As we see in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his inheritance? So what we need to know in order to solve our sense of alienation, loss of purpose and loss of direction, is that it is not about what we do, it's about God. It's what God has already done for us. It's not about, look, how far we are prepared to go for God. It's about how far God is prepared to go for us. 
See, the problems of our society today will not be solved by any scheme of man. They will only be solved by the great scheme that God has already put into place. The scheme that was put into into action when Jesus was born and completed in AD 33 or thereabouts, when according to Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. You see, the problem of man is that we try to save ourselves. We try to solve our own predicaments, when what is required of us is actually very simple. It is to put our trust in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. He is our firstborn saviour. He is our one-year-old calf, our thousand rams, our rivers flowing with oil. He is our once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews 7 says, Jesus meets our need as high priest. He is the one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That is the gospel. Our dues have been paid. And that's what it means, verse 8, to walk humbly with our God. It means to restore our relationship with God and bring an end to our alienation and lack of purpose, not by putting ourselves at the centre of our salvation, but by allowing God to make that sacrifice on our behalf. That is real humility. Everything else is just pride. And so in verse 8, the words of the prophet cut in. He speaks over the people's self-justifying questions. He cuts them right down to size by addressing them as, oh man, literally Adam, formed from the ground all the dust. We, God's people, are to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God's. And so my second point, our duty has been made clear. We are to act justly and love mercy. Well, to act justly in the Bible is firstly to reflect God's own character. So Abraham was told to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just in Genesis 18. In Job 4, Job is asked, can a mortal be more just or righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? In Psalm 89, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And of course, the example we're given of following to follow of somebody who reflected God's character more, more purely than anybody else is, of course, Jesus, who Luke calls in Acts 3, the holy and righteous or just one. And yet to act justly in the Bible also means to apply that justice. But the application of justice is not this pagan notion of blind justice where everybody gets what they deserve, regardless of circumstances. Because, as we said, our God is one who pardons sin and forgives transgression. So God's justice includes mercy, precisely because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus has taken our sins upon himself. So 1 John and chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. There is a sense, therefore, in which we are called to take the sins of others upon ourselves. Mercy is a kindness towards people who are unlovable. Religion, in the sense of King Ahaz, knows nothing of this mercy. You see, he wanted to make the best sacrifices on the best altar. Such was his religious zeal. But when it came to showing mercy, how much mercy did he show 
to his own son, to the child he sacrificed. No, he was prepared to do anything to save himself. Think about it. If your religious zeal is directed purely towards your own salvation, as we find so often in religion, how can you truly show mercy to others? In the end, you'll end up looking down on other people, judging them, or even sacrificing them. Instead, if we know, if we have the assurance of salvation that's all been bought by God, that our dues have been paid, then we don't have to be zealous for our own salvation. We can be zealous for God and for other people. You don't have to look for very far for examples of this. I mean, Edith Cavill, who used to worship at this church, there's a memorial to her just back there, she risked her own life to save more than 200 uh, soldiers during the First World War. And the end was di- died for it. She died because of the love that she had for God and the love for other people. Unfortunately, our society, knows, our society without God knows nothing of this mercy either. So a Christian worker who wears a cross to work as a symbol of her faith is disciplined. A mother was evicted from her flat by Wandsworth Council because of the sins of her son being involved in the riots this week. The ruthlessness of a society without beliefs. Therefore, to love mercy is first of all to receive it. To be on this mercy basis with God, to recognise what he has done for us and forgiving our sin is what we seek to do for others. And to act justly is to reflect God's righteousness in all of our activities, social, financial and political. This was addressed to the people of God. We are the people of God sat here today. First of all, do we know that our dues have been paid? Do you have that assurance of salvation? Or are you still trying in some way to earn favour with God? Secondly, what are we doing? What are we going to do to act justly and to love mercy? How does it fit within our vision as a church? How can we as a congregation work together to fulfil our duty to God, knowing that our dues have been paid by him? We are forgiven by him. As we just consider those questions, let us have a moment of silence and then I'll pray. Father, as we look back over the events of this past week, our hearts weep over a society that has left you behind. Lord, we thank and praise you for the heritage, the Christian heritage of this country, and yet we see people rejecting that heritage and moving away from it so quickly. Lord, we pray for us as your people, as the church not only as part of the church in England, but the church here in Norwich, here in South Ham. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to act justly and to love mercy, to show to others how much we have been forgiven by you, by how much we are prepared to forgive them and to look for their comfort 
and their joy. Lord, guide us and change us, I pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen.